0: Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations as we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. And once again, I'm your host, Christian Hammer. This is a continuation of the DRM conversation we were having with Bill Kalman, where we left off discussing the Library of Congress. I'm not going to give a lot of introduction here, because if you haven't heard that episode, I recommend you do. That's episode 9 of TechTastic. And I'm going to jump right into the episode after just saying thank you for joining i hope you subscribe and here we go
1: so the library of congress coincidentally was formed when the founding father jefferson gave his books to form it so he was in in a way an early file share what happened is um when the office of copyright was created sometime around the civil war or a little bit after that I think is when it happened, but it was placed inside the Library of Congress. The Copyright Office and Library of Congress are intimately connected, and when somebody does a formal registration of a copyright, as I understand it, again, I'm not a patent or copyright attorney. I just have interacted with a lot of them and been through a lot of this sort of formative discussion. So, a- around 2004, when Skype was formed uh that was formed by the folks who were running kazaa nicholas uh, zennstrom and janice Fries, leveraged the fast track protocol that was underneath morpheus and kazaa at the time and repurposed it to create peer-to-peer phone calls that that turned out to be a tremendous success and that inspired us over on our side to say what else could we decentralize besides voip with this kind of peer-to-peer technology and we wrote a seminal paper back then called project d for decentralize where we thought Maybe we can decentralize email, messaging, the web and wallet. This is well before the crypto time as well, which was partly based on peer to peer, as many of you may know. Yeah. And uh,
0: what's what's really striking me about this is it, it, these cycles of uh, centralization and decentralization. The Internet was originally designed to be a largely decentralized information sharing system. That was the resiliency built into it. So in a lot of ways, you're reverting back to the beginning.
1: Exactly, and that that's a lot of what we're working on at MobiNet, which is a decentralized software-defined internet that the individual users create with their own devices and our software. I'll dive into that map more, but to stick on this sort of evolution of thinking around this digital copyright question, I had just been saying that the learning I did going toward the 2005 Supreme Court MGM Grokster case, which was to my knowledge to date the biggest digital copyright case on record, was that it really becomes necessary to think about the problem in light of the, the public public library system because it's the Library of Congress that we pay our tax dollars to support that also houses the copyright office. And all the copyrighted works, particularly music and movies and so on, books, go there with, with copies there at that library. In the digital era, that the libraries need to become digital like Google's become, like the digitization of all the world's information, like AI is doing by ingesting the corpus of human knowledge. You know, Google's become that Library of Congress for the globe. It has. But in being asked to blog about it after this, after the Supreme Court case created actually a third a tertiary or third level liability that if you advertise and induce anyone in any way to infringe upon copyright, that then you could be uh, liable for copyright infringement. And that was a new thing that was essentially created out of that case. And I won't digress into whether that was right or wrong from the standpoint of the court versus legislators creating law, but that's what happened there. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the other side of it, I, I had reflected on it and I thought it's very difficult and still is very difficult to control digital content. Computers and networks are made to make copies of files, save files, and transmit files between computers worldwide. There's got to be a balance between the, the freedom to communicate and the interest to have artificial scarcity or control over what's communicated. That's one reason that things like email are safe harbored, even though email may be sending something that could ostensibly be viewed as your copyrighted work. Similarly, messaging is safe harbored. There are nuances to this in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act where a takedown order can be sent to somebody providing a service and they may be asked to take it down or YouTube may automate that if you put up a video and there's some copyrighted music track in it that they take it down because they detected that you have done that. The bottom line though is that there's a conflict between copyright and the public library. If you look at the mission of the Library of Congress, it's the American People's Library and it's there for the, you know, the enlightenment of the society and yet it cannot go digital with anything newer than 140 years old and the same is true with all our academic and public libraries meanwhile we've got a lot of digital services some of which are advertising model oriented and some of which are subscription like Netflix or Spotify these digital services are then delivering on a paid basis or an ad basis just much like broadcast television used to copyrighted content and then distributing a portion of that to the creators of that content as part of the economic model of those of those services. And it just strikes me that the academic and public libraries like the Library of Congress should also be allowed to go digital and similarly pay some kind of royalty much like radio did on what they share on some kind of a formula. And that that's what led to the blog that I wrote. And that's what, what it's about. And in that sense, I thought that the Digital Millennium Copyright Act have been or should be modified so that Google and other search engines are not able to deliver anything like a journalist article without it being paid for, without having to take a part of the advertising dollars that they generate from, from showing that copyrighted content, website, whatever, out to the creator of it, like the same radio model where you pay 5% to pay to play a Brooks saw because he wrote it. Why is it that in this day and age, it's still okay for the DMCA to allow Google to be safe harbored like that? Yeah, and it, it's an interesting one. If Google search results,
0: if that's all they did is they made it possible so that you could find information and then go to the source, then you know they're providing a service without necessarily taking the content and repurposing it. That's where my complaint usually lands is if you're taking somebody else's content and you're displaying it as your own, that's theft. But when you're taking somebody else's content, giving them credit for it, that's attribution. That's just like I wrote a paper and I got some of the knowledge from it. I quoted from these different books. I make sure that I have got my, you know, my appendix and my article correctly calling out where I got the information from. And that's what I saw search as. But a lot of things that have happened, and I don't know if Google's necessarily doing this. I don't know their whole business model, but a lot of things with AI are effectively theft. You're taking copyrighted, protected information or something that somebody else created. You're taking that information, and repackaging it yes in such a diffuse way that it's almost impossible to determine the origin of it but then you're displaying it as if it was self-created i this is new I'm not sure where that line goes from blurry to non-existent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I think we're leading right into the, the complexity of what it means for AI, large language models, to ingest the entire corpus of human knowledge and creation, and then to be able to build upon that. So remember that works of art that we have, music, movies, paintings, all, all of them, clothing, fashion, everything, is built upon the prior experience of humanity, and we have eras of, you know, cubist starts we have impressionists, we have cave paintings, we have eras of music, the rock era. There's no question that the artists are inspired by the other artists' work and they interpret and create new work based upon it, and many remix and sample in the music industry, for example. Well, I mean, that, even with the visual yeah. arts, people will collage or they'll,
0: you know, there's lots of repurposing that happens. Um, I always forget the artist that took the tur- urinal and turned it upside down. And... Right.
1: So on the one hand, being too constrained preventing some other artists from adopting a style or some prior work and modifying it into their own work, not just a cover of a song, but into their own work, is something that needs to be encouraged for the arts to flourish. Because when, you know, you go from different genres of music, entire, you know, genres of music happened this way. And if you constrain it too much, then by giving too much control, then you essentially are not encouraging the useful arts, you're you're restraining them. I do think the music industry
0: in particular has been infected by that, right? So many lawsuits that a lot of times when an artist creates
1: something, they just know that they're going to have to defend it. Somebody somewhere has used that same set of chords. Right, and we saw in the most recent example is the Ed Sheeran example. Exactly. Back to the libraries, in the digital age, the physical libraries are going to, in my humble opinion, from the economic cost of sustaining them, be in economic trouble because they can't go digital. So I asserted that we should have a uniform digital library policy to allow the Library of Congress, your public library, the academic libraries and universities and libraries in general to digitize all, not just stuff that's over 140 years old, all of their collection, and to similarly provide ad provided or subscription services for it, and to similarly pay a royalty, much like Netflix pays a royalty to the creators of the movies, so that all information could be dealt with like radio or these subscription services, depending on the model you wanted. Whether it be ad or a subscription model, the artist behind the creation would be paid. In doing so, you would stop the effort of creating artificial scarcity, essentially by forcing libraries to stay say physical, especially the Library of Congress, which has all copyrighted content in it. It's an effort to control the availability of information. And that's actually in the limit sort of a posture towards a digital dark ages as opposed to the enlightenment that was brought forward by libraries in the first place. So to me, I come down, I hope on a win-win, which is that the artists and creators should definitely be paid, but that the public libraries and academic libraries that store much of the same stuff, and frankly, probably the museums, right, when it comes to paintings and so on, should be allowed to share digital versions of what they've got in their collections for the benefit of humanity as long as they share some of the proceeds from that, if it's still encompassed by copyright's duration with those who stand to benefit from creating the art and who were encouraged to do that. And what this means is you can share Shakespeare all you like because it's hundreds of years old. You can share many things that are past the span of copyright. This would be a way that would allow the museums and the libraries to actually come into the digital era, which I think would be good for everyone. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more with that. I, I'm
1: still trying to imagine how we apply that to the large language models, for example. And I've had some, da- seen some back and forth dialogue on a, on a sort of a digital copyright oriented email list that's part of. It's called the Foe List, P-H-O, and it was started by former Gem- Geffen executive Jim Griffin and has some other luminaries and copyright attorneys and so on that chime in on stuff. And there has been a lot of dialogue back and forth about how do you deal with the large language model or AI doing deep fakes even of people? Some people would come down on it saying there's no way for corpus that's digested by AI to identify the source of the answer or the art that has been provided by AI in response to a query by a user of AI. That it's simply not possible to control it and there shouldn't be, there's no way to give an attribution and therefore it's not possible for people to be compensated for what was digested. Clearly, any of this stuff we're not very happy. they don't think that's right understandably and i I actually come down on, on their side in this case. I think the engineers with the smartness of the LLM and the ability to do so much actually don't have trouble if they are able to reference what they're digesting in that corpus as it comes in and can, for example, attribute knowledge is power to George Orwell. And therefore, if knowledge is power is given as an answer to a chat GPT query, at least reference that with a footnote that that is from 1980. 84, the novel written by George Orwell. It should be possible to provide attribution and multiple attributions to an, to an answer to a great degree, and, and therefore be able to compensate for this essential digital library, digital librarian service, if you will, of LLMs that there is some compensation for the artist and that it was perhaps even I'd go so far to say as a purposeful oversight of the coders to neglect to label the source of the data that went into the large language models so they could take the position that they had no idea where the words knowledge is power come from. Well, it'd be short sighted on their part anyway, just because uh, you want
0: all the data around it just to give context to it. You, You wanna know origination, time, you know, time period was created and all that kind of stuff because it's it's part of the the data of that state. And so I, I very much doubt they didn't collect that.
1: You know the the posture of the industry has been that it's just a huge corpus of digested words and even letters, and we don't really know. It's more of a language that's been large language model that's been digested, and we're just suggesting probabilistically words that should respond to your query or art that responds to your query and so on. I think at least to some degree that's disingenuous and there should be a way to reference papers, as you said earlier, the attribution of the scientific article that helped contribute to the answer and conclusion and the paper that resulted. And similarly, if you've got a whole bunch of art in the style of Van Gogh, that it's being attributed just right off the bat to Van Gogh because you asked for the art to be generated okay. in the style of Van Gogh in the first place. Van Gogh, of course, is beyond 140 years, so there's no copyright at play. But if you pick somebody more Current, like, like Banksy, based, then then copyright could well be at play, and there should be conceivably some of the big money being made by the providers of these digital library AI services. Some kind of compensation to the artist, and it brings me all back to how so much stuff on the internet is like a digital library. It's a really good point, and, and I do think that the betterment
0: of humankind and the, the sharing of information and the enlightenment aspect of that is a really compelling argument. And when I said that you. You kind of changed my mind on, on a part of this. It was that aspect. The, the lighting of the candle, the sharing of knowledge, all of that was very much, that's a very compelling story and I agree with that. I don't think that information should be hoarded. I think it should be shared because the more people have with knowledge, the better we all do.
1: Well, let's just grab the radio experience, right? In your car, when you just dial in old-fashioned FM radio, right? You're listening to a song, and that artist is being compensated statistically by the number of times it's played and a portion of the royalty pool of the 5% contributed to ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and they get a check for that periodically that compensates them for writing the song. I don't see why that kind of metaphor can't be used across all content. And I've thought that, you know, Google's page rank sort of pointed the way a bit as well as the cost of creating something because if it's it's a journalistic article, it doesn't cost as much as creating a blockbuster movie. I think there has to be some factor in terms of the value of it. Popularity of it finally factors in. But that if the copyright industry were to revisit the Digital Millennium Copyright Act with respect to companies like Google and AI and OpenAI and so on, they could perhaps concede that it's not possible to control, nor should we try to control the digitization and the sharing of the information between the people and from the libraries. But if you're making money off of it or you're supported by tax dollars, like a public library, then some portion of those dollars should go to a royalty pool that gets distributed based on the access and use and the cost of creation of what's shared. You have just convinced me of my own statement. That's exactly how I think it should be played out. I think of it very
0: similar to, you know, you mentioned Google and PageRank and a lot of how ad tech works is figuring out, you know, the probability that somebody's going to be interested in this particular thing and it gets voted up by being bid on that particular placement, you know, the ad bidder scenario. And uh, that determines its value in the marketplace. The higher the value, the more the content creators likely to want it to be able to display it. So on their side, they've got a system running. And I think that the large language models, in some way, are acting in a similar way you know the information is more valuable because it's being requested more frequently a lot like search and there's that particular nugget of information is attributable more than likely i, I agree with you that they're probably being disingenuous on that i, I don't know what to degree I, it might
1: just be laziness it might be because the cost is already enormous to build these language uh, large language or they're just they're Berlin. just inventing it look they're just inventing it right now and they haven't come to grips with the impact on the creative community but i, I can say that if they faked a person, it's like identity theft. And you should be able to own the use of you yourself. For example, I've read recently Universal Music's position that imitating Drake's voice and The Weeknd's voice and releasing an AI song that compiles the two together into a new song with new lyrics, is a copyright infringement of their major artist. And they're also trying to enforce at companies like Spotify that they should take down the AI Drake song as an infringement on Drake. The law always moves more slowly than the tech. I have become a believer in the First Amendment, though, which is that people should be able to privately and safely communicate directly. And that's sort of the rest of the story, which has taken me from that old paper, Project D, to decentralize the web, email, and messaging, through a journey to create the first peer-to-peer email that directly sends anything in any size, doesn't have a limit of 25 megabytes, is end-to-encrypted and is not stored or mined by by gmail or others in their central servers and with that take control of the digital data about your life your profile communications back into your own auspices It once was there when we had our personal computers early on. So for years, we've been working to take the 50 year old email ecosystem, which has applications like contacts and calendar and messenger and chat and so on, often integrated into a productivity suite like Google Workspace or Windows 365 and get to the point where we could actually directly bypass the cloud and directly work with each other. A lot of the motivation of this is also helpful to the content industry because at least half of the cost of delivering content and of sending it to others is sending it in and out of the cloud, which is also very energy consumptive. So today, different cloud drives boxes and and, uh, services and shared folders like, you know, like the Docsend Dropbox subsidiary for a data room on the company. And all this stuff adds up and people in the affluent world can afford it, but worldwide people cannot afford to pay all this cloud overhead. And saving money on cloud is a big trend right yeah of course (laughs) the whole point of cloud was supposed to be well there was two resiliency and it's supposed to be less expensive it turns out that there's a paradox which and horowitz wrote about which is a you know trillion dollar paradox they put a number on it it's bigger than that basically it's using up you know right now about this don't hold me to this about about four percent of global power on the way to 10 to 14 percent of global power to put everything into the center we were saying the other day Serfs of feudal digital cloud lords, where all of our data is there being monetized by them, including our our digital identity, basically our digital life is there. So with this initiative we have at at, uh, MobiNet with a suite of applications called MobiMail, big mail, big net, we basically allow the users to directly connect. So we're working to directly connect everybody at the edge of the internet, bypassing clouds and chains, but not anti-cloud or anti-chain, able to work with them. And with a suite of reference apps that allow you to communicate directly, privately, securely. It's on a foundation of you having self custody of your data and your keys to it and has three basic pillars. One is the self sovereign network that is created by the users, essentially a software internet of the people, by the people, for the people, a digital ID profile that you aggregate about yourself and the applications that you integrate upon it and manage and and control yourself and a decentralized AI on your own device that works just for you instead of for Google or Microsoft or somebody else. Therefore, we look to empower humanity to communicate safely anything of any size and to find it more easily. That's what that's what we're working on at MobyNet.
0: Yeah, and Bill, I want to give you the chance to like, I'm sure people in the audience would love to know how they can either, how can they find out more about Mobinet, um how can they get involved if they want to get involved? How could they uh, use it when it's available? How do they find out about MobyNet? Well,
1: we, we're, we have a stealth website and we're about to get it to be a bit more to allow people to sign up for it. But it, the, we've got several um, domain names, one is MobiNet.io and the other ones, MobiMail, uh, .com. Um, And perhaps the most interesting thing is, uh, you know, the identity part of this, including your address on the edge of the internet, which we're working on. And it's, I think it's premature for me to, to, to name that yet, but I think everybody would be excited to know about that when they're ready. Super stealth coming
0: soon. Really exciting. We, I mean, I think that uh, we've discussed this before too. The eventual goal of uh, AI as it is now is to move towards that personal Data assistant, you know the the, the Palm Pilot with, with with AI on your smartphone uh, that is knows about you, um, but is private, is held in your hand, and uh, helps you live your life, that you know live your best life. And this technology that MobiNet's building is a critical backbone component for the transportation layer of data uh, across around the edge and not through the middle. You know, not going to any major provider is a huge piece in making that possible. And that we all know that's where it's headed.
1: Yeah, and and, and that is it's incredible. Exciting. There's a lot of reason to have some trepidation and, and fear, honestly, about AI eclipsing the knowledge of humanity and essentially being smarter than we are and perhaps even becoming our overlords and so we believe that having your own ai working for you solely and then you being able to communicate out what it knows about you in a controlled manner to to other nodes on the edge and to the center as may be needed is really helpful and that it'll be possible to use that ai to make your own life more productive to find things more easily to um, do so in a private way that respects your own uh, information and privacy, which is, is really not that viable with the, with the centralized versions of, of um, the large language models. So we look to put the network, your, your, your digital identity profile data and AI in your palm under your control. With you having the right to store your data privately and securely as you wish, being agnostic to wherever you want to store it, uh, and this is this is uh, what we're what we're working on.
0: Yeah, and it's just like I said, it's foundational to, uh, to the the utopian future instead of the dystopian one we could end up on. Uh, Bill, we're we're gonna run out of time. I try to keep these uh, podcasts yeah. to a certain length. I wanted Thank to give you a chance to give like one last thing. What do you want to leave the audience with?
1: Well, I'm excited about empowering everyone worldwide so that, you know, we we can communicate directly and and essentially safely. It's got so many applications from journalists being reporting and being in danger, now being able to safely communicate to uh, people in various countries that are uh, constrained one way or another by their governments to be able to communicate directly with their you know fellow man or woman or you know he she they worldwide. And to do that, you have to have low cost. And essentially, this this approach has no incremental cost beyond what you already have in your hand, what you paid for, the bandwidth you have, the storage, the CPU that you have, and that's that's why this will open up unlimited free communication worldwide. Plenty of free- business model to it for businesses, yeah. but that's for the for for the common person. That's. That's really the driver. Yeah, it's,
0: a, it's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Bill. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'd love to have you on again another time, maybe after uh, you know. there's a demo that people can go yeah. try out. It'd be a great time to come on. Absolutely. So
1: thank you very much, Bill. Thank you and, very much, Christian. It's a pleasure as always. You're,
0: yeah, you're terrific. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bill on TechTastic. Thank you again for listening. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast. If you'd like to be on an episode of Tastic, the best way to do so is to reach out to me via email at hammer at techtastic.tech. See you next time.